As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Hello and welcome to Unbelievable, the show that aims to get Christians and non-Christians thinking about the topics that really matter to all of us. Before we hear from today's guests, just a quick reminder to visit premierunbelievable.com for more shows, articles and resources. And if you register or sign up for our newsletter there, you will automatically be entered into our competition to win a free book. If you enjoy listening to Unbelievable, please do consider rating and reviewing it on your podcast platform. Today we are talking about another important topic, and we would love to hear your thoughts on this, so do get in touch by emailing unbelievable at premier.org.uk. But for now, let's jump in on today's discussion. Hello, and welcome to what I'm sure will be a thought-provoking episode of Unbelievable, in which we try to get Christians and non-Christians thinking about the topics that matter to all of us. Today we're diving deep into the historical narratives of Israel as depicted in the Bible and juxtaposing them with the complex modern-day realities of the Middle East. And we have two guests to help us navigate these complexities, renowned New Testament scholar and New York Times best-selling author Dr. Darrell Bock. He's a former president of the Evangelical Theological Society. And we're also joined by social entrepreneur and the expert in refugee resettlement, Dr. Chris Kandaya. Uh, thank you both very much for joining us. And one key topic we'll be discussing is the fine line between legitimate criticism of Israel and the moment when such criticism crosses over into the realm of anti-Semitism. Is being anti-Zionist synonymous with being anti-Semitic? It's a nuanced debate, and we'll explore various perspectives, including the fact that not all Jews, even within conservative circles, align with the Zionist ideology. Let's begin, though, with an issue which is extremely uncomfortable for Christians, and that is the historical responsibility the Christian Church bears for anti-Semitism. Professor Bock, there's no doubt that the early church was significantly anti-Semitic, is there? No, uh, there isn't any doubt about that. The history of um, the church's relationship with Judaism is uh, a real mixed bag. And um, Jews became blamed for the death of Jesus as a group, as opposed to the leadership objections that really were at work in the original historical situation. And that produced a... um, a bias, if I can use that word, against Jews in general, which then manifested itself in a variety of ways. Um, And it's poisoned uh, Jewish-Christian relationships for many centuries because 
Jews felt like they were being charged with killing someone uh, that they didn't feel having having any direct responsibility for. Well, one of the things that, that astonished me as coming from a Protestant and evangelical background is that I'd thought this was something that was particular to the early church and to the Roman Catholic Church, to be blunt. And then I'd read this um, about Martin Luther. He wrote a book called On the Jews and Their Lies, and in it he said this, uh, Jewish synagogues and schools should be set on fire, their prayer books destroyed, rabbis forbidden to preach, homes burned, and property and money confiscated. Luther claimed that they should be shown no mercy or kindness, afforded no legal protection, and, and I quote, these poisonous envenomed worms, end quote, should be drafted into forced labor or expelled for all time. He also advocated their murder, writing, we are at fault in not slaying them. Now, this is later Luther. He had rather different attitudes earlier. But uh, Chris Candaya, uh, it is truly shocking when you read that, isn't it? I mean, awful. It is shocking, Roger. And for me, it's, it's one of the challenges that we face as Christians between the relationship between our gospel and our culture. We often think that Christians have a kind of hotline to heaven that we read the Bible um, without any influences from the surrounding culture. But sadly, uh, our culture is doing a better job of discipling us than the scriptures. Uh, I've seen that in my studies uh, looking at um, apartheid in South Africa. A lot of the ideological framework for apartheid was actually constructed by Christians. Where we, we thought, our, our brothers and sisters in the um, in the South African church thought they were um, being true gospel believers, but actually their their culture had shaped their understanding of race more than the scriptures have. Um, the, the Bible's so clear, isn't it, that every single person is made in the image of God, has intrinsic value, dignity, and worth, whether they're Jewish, whether they're black, whether they're rich or poor or abled or disabled. The, the Bible's fundamental teaching is so clear. You know, the most famous verse in the Bible, for God so loved the world, every single person on this planet is loved by God. That That's a general statement. And yet, as you know very well, uh, the Bible has been used to underpin both apartheid and also more widespread discrimination about people of different yeah. colors. I remember going to the Voortrekker Monument in South Africa and seeing how those early um, South African, white South Africans, compared themselves to the Jews in the wilderness. They did, yeah. Uh, and yet the same sort of oppressed peoples, and yet went on to behave as they were. Um, uh, Professor Bock, when we look at the causes of that, the fundamental charge that comes out with a lot of anti-Semitism through the ages is, of course, Christ killers. And there are people who believe that this attempt to blame the Jews for a decision essentially by the Roman authorities to execute Jesus is at the heart of that. Do you think that's true? And does that make you wonder about that section of the New Testament in which Pilate allegedly washes his hands and basically says it's to the Sanhedrin, I suppose, it's your responsibility. You, the Jews, are basically responsible. Yeah, this is, uh, this is the first of many conversations we're going to have that have nuance in them that people aren't used to talking about and that um, uh, defies an oversimplification. And so... Um, 
what you have in the first century are Jewish leaders concerned about how Jesus is challenging the religious structure within Judaism who go to a Roman ruler who has no such concerns at all, but has to be able to look after the interests of Caesar. And eventually what happens is Pilate decides he's going to, I say he's going to dance with the gal he brought to the dance. Uh, Caiaphas was a high priest that he had appointed on a regular basis throughout his prefecture. And in the midst of that, he was relying on the advice he was getting from Pilate, uh, uh, getting from Caiaphas. Pilate was relying on Caiaphas for the way they were seeing Jesus and the way they were portraying the threat. So yes, technically Rome is responsible for Jesus' death because only she could crucify someone. And he's crucified technically for the crime of sedition, claiming to be a king that Rome didn't appoint because Rome appointed the kings. And Rome had a view that if you don't let us do uh, and run the empire the way we want, we have a view of law and order. You follow our law, we'll put you in order. And, uh, and you'll, end up, you'll end up on a cross as an example to everybody else. And so, as a result, uh, it was Jewish leadership pressure that probably prompted Pilate to execute Jesus. But in the end, that was his responsibility. And so some people, when they talk about the New Testament... And we do. Let me just make one point. Some people, when they talk about the New Testament, say that the Romans get off the hook as the New Testament proceeds to describe the crucifixion of Jesus. But that's actually not true. I like to tell people, how many of you would like to have a judge who says you're innocent, but I'm going to crucify you anyway? And that's where we're left with in the Gospels. Well, we know from elsewhere, from other sources, that Pilate was certainly pretty cruel or would have had no compunction about, um, about executing Jesus. So whether he did wash his hands of it, I'm not sure. Well, we can argue about that. But the point I was trying to make, I think, is that through the centuries, your interpretation, your sophisticated interpretation, has not been the one that's been pushed by a large section of Christianity who've simply used that charge of Christ killer. And it comes up time and time again. It's as if those verses are Tinder waiting for a match. Yes, it's true. You also have, and again, you, 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 I'm going to be I'm going to be nuancing our conversation all the way through just because of the complexity of it. But you also have passages in which the opportunity and the responsibility for the crucifixion is laid before at least the crowd in Jerusalem that is sitting there. And they basically say, may his blood be, be on our hands, which some people see as an anti-Semitic text in Matthew. Of course, Matthew himself is a Jew. So, um, so it's a self-reflection that's going on. And basically what that response is saying is, we are responsible for the choice that our leaders are making about what is happening with Jesus. And we accept that responsibility. But the responsibility didn't have the penalty that came to be attached to it historically. And, and that is that, um, that we blame a whole race for a decision that really was about a, a battle for who best represented the voice of what the promise of God was about that had been given to Israel. And that's what Jesus and the Jewish leadership were, were battling over. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I've talked about anti-Christian anti-Semitism as if it's a thing of the past, but it's a thing of the recent past, if it's in the past at all. Chris Candia, I mean, you're younger than me, but I remember uh, being brought up in an evangelical church when it was said to, well, didn't actually use the expression Christ killer, but the Jews had clearly rejected Jesus, uh, the covenant was over, and et cetera, et cetera. And there was this implication that... Um, 
uh, the Jews as a whole were at fault. And certainly there was some social anti-Semitism in my youth, even after the Second World War, even after the the Holocaust, which is extraordinary. Did you did you meet any uh, anti-Semitism as you were being brought up? I, did, I didn't, actually. I came to faith um, in my teens, which is sadly, you know, 35 years ago now. Um, and I didn't experience um, anti-Semitism. I, I think for, for my generation, we, we understood very clearly that Jesus was Jewish, all his disciples were Jewish, uh, the, the, the earliest church were Jewish. There is no way you could um, use the Christian gospel to persecute or look down on another group of people that it was faith that was a distinguishing factor, not your ethnicity, that salvation was by faith and not through works, that we were you know, born again. That wasn't because of our ancestry. That was because of our faith. So it was a very simple logic for us. Um, sadly... But I'm we- just going to ask you, I'll ask you whether or not, I want to ask you whether or not the images you saw in church were the ones I saw, because what I saw in church, product was a blonde Anglo-Saxon yes. Jesus. Yes. The Jewishness of Jesus had been taken away from him. And the law, I thought the law had something to do with what the police enforced. Um, I got, I learned a little bit later, of course, not the case. But I'm just, in some ways, we may not have been anti-Semitic then, but we'd taken the Jewishness out of Jesus. And- sure. I, I, think, I remember I, I used to travel in Malaysia a lot. And in, the, in those days, instead of having movie photos to promote a film, local artists would draw... Um, pictures to promote the film and um, I remember traveling in Malaysia and it was a Terminator movie that was being um, shown and in Malaysia where the population were mainly Malay Arnold Schwarzenegger looked Malay and when you went to Singapore it was more Chinese Arnold Schwarzenegger looked Chinese and and guess what British people took an image of Jesus and basically made it look like themselves so we created a white English Jesus now was that about anti-Semitism, I think it was more about um, narcissism, that we wanted to see ourselves or people that you know look, looked white and blonde. We didn't like the otherness of Jesus, the foreignness of Jesus. And we did that to everybody in the Bible. Um, I, I just wrote a book about this, actually. We called it uh, Whistle Stop Tales Around the Bible uh, in 10, sorry, Around the World in 10 Bible Stories. And it's a book for children because um, I emphasize the fact that Ruth was Jordanian or Abraham was from Iraq or, you know, the, the Sudanese senator. You're, you're trying to celebrate the international nature of Scripture. I don't think, for me, that was about ex- eradicating Jesus' Jewishness. I think it was his otherness, the fact that he was foreign and we wanted someone to look more like us. But do you think the net result of that, Professor Bock, is that most people uh, growing up did not understand the context and therefore... A lot of the New Testament, a lot of what Jesus said, whatever, um, they will not understand because they don't understand what Jesus was being taught in the synagogue, what the Jewish law was. Um, that that that's certainly in my own education. That was a massive gap. Yes, and one of the things that's happened recently in New Testament studies has been the recapture of Jesus as a Jewish person coming out of a Jewish context, where a lot of this is being developed and focused on. Uh, it's a Probably a product of the fact that we have discoveries from the last century at at the Dead Sea community and that kind of thing, which remind us of what the first century world was like and the kinds of things that 
that Jewish people were talking about and believing in the types of things that were in conflict between what Jesus was doing and the Jewish leadership at the time of his ministry. I, I agree with you that there is, there's a, I, I would say there's a latent anti-Semitism that ties into what Chris was saying, which is there is an otherness to being a Jew that's always been there to which the world has always reacted. I mean, after all, Judaism was a monotheistic religion in a polytheistic world. And, uh, and so when you think about just how different, they had a different calendar, they had different dietary practices, et cetera. They were just, they were, if we're talking about other, they were other. And, uh, and that produced a reaction around uh, many people that the Jews have, have dealt with really for, for millennia, not just decades, not just centuries. What, was, what surprised me was to discover that anti-Semitism existed before Jesus was born. You read about the Romans saying, well, hold on a minute, who are these people? Are they, we don't mind them having their gods as long as they'll recognize our emperor as God, but they say there's only one God. We don't mind our children intermarry, but they won't allow that. We invite them to our table. They won't eat our food. So as you say, that otherness uh, was there before, obviously before Jesus, and has been a consistent, consistent thing. I mean, you had the Maccabean War, which was an attempt by basically people who lived in the area of Syria today um, to uh, wipe out the Jewish distinctives. Now, the rationale for it, I mean, this is what gets interesting. The rationale for it that the Syrians had is we have an empire here that we need to unify. We need to have a unified culture. We need to have a unified way of, of, of living together and coexisting. And these people are so different that uh, we have to, they either have to assimilate to us or we have to deal with them. And so, um, you know, so Antiochus Epiphanes tried to wipe Jews off the face of the earth, basically, uh, and, and overrun them and take away their Torah, etc. And the Maccabean War, which is celebrated at Hanukkah, is all, all about that because uh, the Jews resisted and were successful and really preserved their identity as a result. So this is, this, this is something people don't appreciate. For Jewish people, the, the situation we now find ourselves in is a repeated narrative that has repeated itself over and over again across the history of humanity and the history of Israel as a people. And so uh, that's why it resonates so deeply with them. And that generates some of the, uh, I'll say, emotion and passion about this that Jewish people feel because they felt like we've been dealing with this for generations. Well, of course, one of the responses to that has been Zionism. And uh, I think one of the surprising things is that by the beginning of the, what, the 20th century, Zionism was still very much the view of a minority of Jews. And you had Theodor Herzl and Weizmann um, obviously trying to generate support for that idea, and it still didn't seem to take off. So do you think, Chris, uh, that, that the, the Holocaust was the moment when Israel became, if you like, the return to it, became inevitable. That is the watershed moment. Or, or do you think that that was building much, much earlier? I can only comment from, from my historical perspective. And, and looking back, it does look like that was the tipping point, at, at least in the imagination of my generation. You know, whether it was films like Schindler's List, where we, that the horror of the Holocaust became so real for us that we, we, could, we, we, we couldn't imagine people being so persecuted, so oppressed, 
that of course it made sense for them to have somewhere safe to live and call their own and and so that that was the psyche of my generation i think on top of that there was also a christian theological framework that looked at the future and a lot of that you know we call it dispensationalism it was populate popularized by books like yeah. the left behind series with tim lahay and and a lot of that gave a certain theological reading that said you need the Jews back in Israel in order for the end to come, and that sh that became quite popular in in my generation. Um, not always accepted in the UK. It seems to be a, kind of an American export, but popular in some pockets of the UK kind of theological scene. Uh, so, uh, Professor Bock, um, with the, we think about Zionism as as as, as being, uh, if you like, supported by those who want to actually go to Israel. But it's also, it's a backstop for many Jews, isn't it? I, I mean, I've talked to Jews who do and don't want to live in Israel. They don't particularly like the society, and they certainly don't like the leadership. But they want to know it's there. And indeed, if it's under threat, they'll go and defend it, even though they don't like the government that's there. Because they have to have a backstop. In the light of history, there has to be, in the light of anti-Semitism, there has to be a backstop. Is that? Do you think that's true? Yeah, and... And let me let me piggyback on something Chris mentioned because I think it's important, and that is I think the Holocaust. Um, uh, if you think about if you think of this question as a seesaw, the Holocaust put the weight on one side of the conversation, but the seesaw was already seesawing before we got to that point. The theological backdrop that he alluded to, which by the way was fueled not just by Americans but by prominent British evangelicals, the Balfour Agreement was generated out of Britain. Uh, and, uh, and so, uh, and this was, this proposed the idea that the Jews had a right to the lands in, uh, in the Middle East. So, um, so that's an important feature. So there were, there was already momentum in the early part of the 20th century for going in this direction. It was fueled to a degree by this theological commitment that said that Messiah would come back, and let's put a Christian overhang on it. Messiah would come back to Israel one day, and Israel would be a people in the land one day because she was promised a land for perpetuity uh, in the beginning in Genesis. And so everything that's happened since then has not canceled out uh, that commitment and that promise. Now, when that was being said, um, uh, a lot of people said, there's no way. I mean, just look who occupies the Middle East at the end of the 19th century. Um, and and then when it started to happen, and then when it did happen, finally in the 1940s, this was a huge fuel about, well, maybe some of these people knew what they were talking about, even though they looked at a time as if it would never happen. And so uh, I think all of that is a, actually still part of our background in this conversation, uh, this idea that Israel has a right to land. So let's go to the backstop now. So what you have is a backstop for a people who's, who have since they are a minority persecuted, who can't live in their own world with their own customs, et cetera. The Holocaust was the absolute proof that this would never work to be mixed in. And then I do think, and this is, this, is, this is pretty skeptical on my part, but I do think you could make a case for this, that one of the reasons Europe was open to the idea of a land for Israel in the Middle East so then the Jewish problem would no longer be in Europe. It would be elsewhere. And, uh, and whether that's anti-Semitic or not, I'll let people judge. But I do think that that's also part of what, what fueled 
uh, uh, openness and a willingness to, to create this space for Jewish people. Some of it out of sympathy for what happened in the Holocaust, but the other is, man, that'll help us with a problem that we've historically been dealing with for quite some time. Karin Krishkandaya here. That's an extraordinary idea, isn't it, that anti-Semitism in a way, uh, if we call it that, was behind the foundation of the modern-day state of Israel. Only one element, but that suggestion was, ah, as the professor has just said, we'll get rid of the Jews that way and we won't have to think about them. It's a horrible thought, but yeah. It is a horrible thought. I'd, I'd never put those two things together, but now that Professor Book has done that, it, it's it's whirring in my mind. I, I was recently at a film premiere for a movie about the kinder transport, where the UK welcomes 10,000 Jewish children fleeing the Nazis. Um, and it's one of the, the, the most treasured things that our country's done. It was an act of great compassion. But the context was only children were allowed to come, not their parents, even though we knew they faced incredible danger. And a lot of that was there was a lot of anti-Semitism around. They were worried about large numbers of Jewish people coming to live here. And it, it was only the children that were seemed to be somehow safe to be able to come. So that, that really scares me um, that that could have been part of the origin story of the, the nation of Israel. But the other thing you said, Roger, which was, interesting was this backstop um I, I know a lot of jewish people in the u.s um some friends of mine incredibly generous wealthy people really involved in refugee resettlement made lots of money on the stock exchange but uh, i was having dinner with them um not long ago and they said we all have a go bag we're, we're ready right we're, we're worried if if things change we're ready to go at a moment's notice and where would they go they, they would go to israel so you. you're right that is part of the psyche for many Jewish people because of the the generations of anti-Semitism and hatred they faced, that they live with that level of uncertainty. So I could, I, it makes sense to me, as you're saying it, that for a lot of um, Jewish people around the world, Israel is a necessary escape zone if things get bad. Well, thank you very much. We're going to take a, a quick break in a moment. Uh, what do you think of what you're hearing? Do send us an email and let us know. We always love to hear from you, and you can email us at uh, unbelievable at premier.org.uk, or you can get in touch by social media at, at unbelievable, capital F, capital E, uh, for X, or facebook.com forward slash premier unbelievable, if you want to interact on our Facebook page. We've still obviously a great deal to talk about. You're listening to Premier's Unbelievable with me, Roger Bolton, and I'm joined today by Professor Daryl Bock and by Krish Kandaya. Plenty more to discuss. Don't go away. We'll be back just in a moment. Before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast, I've got a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this Easter. As you know, N.T. Wright is without doubt one of the greatest Christian thinkers and apologists of our time. And some of Tom's answers to questions about Jesus' death, resurrection and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking. That's why we've created a brand new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. And remember, your support is truly critical to help keep resources and podcasts like Ask Anti Write Anything and Unbelievable going strong, because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So please give the very best gift you can today and make sure to download your copy 
of Jesus' death, resurrection and return devotional at premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. That's premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. Thank you. Thank you for joining us uh, for this unbelievable and welcome back to part two of our discussion about Israel. And with me, uh, our New Testament scholar and New York Times best-selling author, Dr. Daryl Bock, and refugee expert and social entrepreneur and Christian, Chris Kandaya. Uh, can we continue by start, well, going back to that here idea of Zionism, which I, we use, but what do we mean by it and what is Zion? Indeed, what is biblical Israel? What are we talking about here? Um, Professor Bock, what, what does Zionism mean? What what is Zion? Well, Zion is basically another name for Israel and the land of Israel. Uh, Mount Zion is um, where Jerusalem is located. So, um, just geographically, it's 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 a reference to the capital of what became the nation of Israel, and thus um, by uh, kind of uh, you know part representing the whole, a way of talking about Israel as a people and Israel as a nation. And then Zionism is simply the idea that um, at a time in which Israel didn't have a home and didn't have a nation, a place to gather as Jewish people, that there should be such a place for Jewish people. And, uh, and, and that fueled the, the, the Zionist movement, which really emerged in the middle of the 19th century. And, uh, and but what did, can I ask about? Sorry to interrupt you. Yeah. Can I ask about the the boundaries of Israel? Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, most people I, I got confused about Judah and Israel and biblical Israel and the Israel of in the, you know the late nineteen forties and everything else. In inherent in the idea of Zionism, was there ever a sense of where modern the the boundaries of the modern day Israel should be? because you hear some, obviously, Jewish settlers talking about, well, from the river, presumably the River Jordan, to the sea, and some going further than that, and, of course, to a time when Israel went over the Jordan. So with this idea of Zionism, did anybody spell out the physical limits of the land? So that's actually a great question to which I don't know the answer, whether someone uh, actually proposed what the limits would be. I, I think it was more fueled by the idea we deserve a place that can hold our people. And the where the where you where you put uh the uh border the border guards, et cetera, was less important than that you had a nation where you could put a border. And uh But those but those who have come particularly from Russia and the more religious Jews right. who seem to have moved in do seem to um to lean towards the, as it were, the biblical definition, which means, well, at least, doesn't it, an Israel that goes up to the Jordan, if not beyond? Yes. Well, the actual area that uh, is specified in the Old Testament is much larger than current Israel. Um, but um, I, again, what you have, this is the other thing about Zionism that's interesting and what we see a reality of in Israel. Zionism is um, is is not as religious as Judaism is, if I can say it that way. Now, this may be a confusing statement, so let me, just bear with me. In other words, Zionism has um, secular and sociological roots that are a part of it alongside the recognition, yes, some of our people are very, very religious. 
And so if you go to Israel today, you will find very religious Jews who live there and very secular Jews who live there. And in fact, some of the political pull and push and pull within Israel itself comes out of this mixed hybrid nature of the nation uh, that has these um, tension points within it because some secular Jews are quite uncomfortable with the amount of religious enforcement that the more conservative Jews want to place on the entire nation. And, and so that ends up being an, an element in the push and pull. And, and so the point that I'm trying to make is Zionism with this secular element was less concerned with the expanse of what the land should be and more concerned with there ought to be a place where we are able to live. And uh, and so I think that's part of the reality that's in the background as well. I'm Chris Kandaya. Um, this debate about what Zion is and the role of religion within it often goes back to this concept that God gave the land of Israel to the Jewish people. Which land? Again, is there, I mean, can, because you know, some of us have this vague idea. Well, wait a minute. The Israel was uh, Judah was to the north. Israel was to the south. Which what, what again? What are the parameters here? What was the land <laughs> that God did give to the Jewish people? Uh, I wish I could tell you, Roger. I I think um, <laughs> it's, it's it's highly contested. I'm I'm no expert in the geography of it, but this this concept of the overlap of a religious understanding of Israel as a God-given nation and the political reality of a Jewish land. That, that's a really interesting um, layer. I, I, I was talking to some people who were on the kinder transport the other day, um, survivors of this um, evacuation from the Nazis. And, um, and one of them said to me, I, I, I'm not Jewish. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, I, I'm not religious, I'm secular. So even the understanding of what it means to be Jewish was contested. So um, David Baddiel talks about this in his book, Jews Don't Count. Uh, he says, well, you know, I'm a secular person, but I was Jewish enough for Hitler to want to kill me. They di he didn't care about what my beliefs were. Mm. He cared about my ethnicity. So these terms, you know, Zion, Israel, uh, is it a religious entity? Is it a political reality? Uh, being Jewish, is that a religious identity or is that an ethnic identity? That they're, they're very confusing. And when people then start debating about the existence of Israel or Zionism or, um, you know, anti-Semitism, we, we get all these different layers and sometimes people are talking past each other. Um, so I, I think when it comes to your question, you know, what is the land? What are the boundaries? I'm not clear on that. But I do think that that this God-given nature piece can really bring confusion into the into that conversation. Now, if you look at this historically um, and you think through what the land is, the place where Israel is today is pretty much the nature of the land as it was in the first and second centuries, uh, when uh, and in the period of the Maccabean War, etc. Uh, Israel contracted and expanded depending on how much power she had. Um, but she was always a buffer between uh, the Seleucids and the Syrians to the east and Egypt to the to the west, southwest. And so, uh, and in fact, at one point, there were six wars fought in Israel between those two groups. Uh, so uh, between 300 BC and the time of Jesus, just before the time of Jesus. So so this was always a contested piece of land, uh, and 
but the the bulk of what is Israel today is is pretty uh, coterminous with the bulk of what was historically Israel in the Old Testament. The larger boundaries that the, are named early on were never totally occupied in any point in the Old Testament period. But but what disturbs some people when they look at uh, they hear some religious Jews talk about God giving the land, they uh, people. Th- Remember what God apparently told Joshua to do, which some would call genocide, which is in order to create the land and empty the land for the Jews to kill everything, including animals. And God then uh, allegedly uh, was very unhappy because Joshua spared some people. Um, That's a very disturbing picture of God. How do you respond to that, Professor Bock? Well, I think, again, without context, it's hard to know what you're dealing with. And here you're dealing, again, with not just a polytheistic religion, but a religion that engaged in child sacrifice, a very um, moral-less kind of society on which the claim was God was not only giving Israel the land, he was exercising a judgment on this people and their culture. Um, This was an exceptional period in the Old Testament, and it is probably one of the hardest parts of the Old Testament um, to understand. But it also sits behind a very um, deeply uh, Christian view, which is that people are accountable to God for how they live, and one day he will hold them accountable for how they live. This is just an example of an early accounting uh, that this society went through. And, And so in that context, um, yes, it was harsh, it was total, but Christian theology has had for a long time the idea that the judgment is going to involve everybody, pro and con, and no one will be spared uh, 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 an accounting for how they have responded as people to being made in his image to the God who created them. But the assumption, Chris Kandaya, there is that uh, because of the special relationship between the Jewish people and God, the space had to be made for them. The promised land had to be delivered. Hard luck on those who were in the promised land before the Israelites arrived. Now, some people would draw parallel between that and the situation facing the Palestinians of an Arab background who had to make way increasingly uh, for uh, Jews from abroad and elsewhere. And Uh, People then ask, why should the Palestinians have to be paying the price for anti-Semitism in many ways that based in Europe? Does that disturb you? It it does. And and I I think there are plenty of ways that people have abused scripture to get to their ideological point or their political point. Um, And I I think what Professor Bock said, this was a special time in Israel's history. Uh, Think about it. You know, when, when Abraham wanted to go into the land, God said no because the sin of the Canaanites hadn't reached its completion that this this coming into the land wasn't appropriate at that juncture because God was giving every last chance for the Canaanites to do the right thing and it was when his elastic patience if you like had been exhausted that's when the um uh the occupation if you like or the um the arrival of the Jewish nation was was appropriate. But the other thing that helped me recently, I read um, uh, Dr. Paul Kapan's book, um, Is God a Moral Monster? And he had a really interesting comment on Jericho, one of the cities that the uh, Israelites were told to um, uh, destroy. 
and you, you might remember there was a big wall around the city. Do you remember that that, that uh, Rahab had a window in, and uh, yeah. that, that the spies had to, to scale to get in? So that doesn't sound like a normal village to me. That sounds more like a a fortress. Uh, and you might also remember that the Israelites were commanded to march around the city seven times in one day, um, carrying all their you know musical instruments and weapons and everything um I, I tried to do some running in my youth and and even a small town running around it seven times would have been hard just wearing shorts and a t-shirt so this sounds like a very small military um installation and um for me that's that changes some of the framing of what's going on here that does sound like there might have been an opportunity for uh, people to repent to you know leave the land or to, to come out of their own uh, accord but when that that warning was exhausted then against these military installations you got this kind of judgment but palestinian arabs today have not had any warning if you're a small child if you're born into sure. gaza in a yeah. refugee camp what control do you have over your life and yet some would seem to say it's terribly unfortunate but actually it's trumped by the need of jews to have a safe home can Professor Bock, can Christians actually go along with that? There's a, a the difficulty here is that this is this is a situation that really has existed ever since the establishment of Israel in the late 1940s, um, and the problem is multi-layered because yes, you have Palestinians, but you also have you didn't have I don't think the kind of foresight to ask the question what happens to these people when they are displaced. Uh, and the problem was the Arab communities weren't interested in absorbing the Palestinians either. So they kind of had no place to go. And, uh, and, and so to put all the blame on Israel for this happening is actually to ignore part of what's going on. Another thing that's going on here is that you have three religions that are involved in the area. You have Judaism, you have much lesser degree Christianity, and then you have Muslims. And so you have that mix that's also going on. So you not only have an ethnic diversity that you're coping with, uh, that the Palestinians are not, I don't think, are accepted by the Arabs as being fully Arab, if I can say it that way. Um, and, but you also have these religious differences that are, that are in the region as well. And so, so the Palestinians become the orphans of the region, uh, be the way I would describe it. Uh, they become the orphans of the region, and and the Muslim presence infiltrates where they live and operates against Israel from those enclaves. Uh, I think, but you could argue that that happens. But Professor, you could argue that has happened because that other solution has not been found. That a vacuum has been created into which Hamas and other organizations go. And going back to that question I was trying to get at before about the Christian responsibility, it can't be sure that Christians have a greater responsibility to Jews rather than Arabs or Palestinians. Presumably, we're all, they're all equal in the sight of God. I remember talking to a former chief rabbi in this uh, country, Jonathan Sachs, and I put to him, um, is a Jewish life more important than any other life? And he said, no which was quite a brave thing in some ways to That's say. That's true, but you, uh, we're talking about this pretty abstractly right now. And what I mean by that is that I really think the chief problem in the region is the fact 
Not that you have Palestinians and Jews who, who I think left to their own would try and figure out a way to make this work. What you have is a group embedded within them that wants to annihilate the presence of Israel in the land. That's what Hamas is. And so that is a toxic element in this conversation that poisons everything that happened. I mean, the reason we're in the situation that we're in right now is because of an attack on Hamas. People were trying to peacefully coexist, and they there were still inequities. No one's denying that. But people were trying to peacefully coexist until you know Hamas launched its reaction. Now, we can say that Hamas is responsible for uh, sorry, that, that the way Israel treated the Palestinian problem is responsible for this, and to a degree that is true. But it's also the case that the problem has been exacerbated by a group of people, and then also including some nations around Israel, that want to see her wiped from the face of the earth. And so to ignore that level of hostility against Jews in the midst of discussing this problem is a challenge. I spoke to Palestinian uh, Palestinian group uh, ten years ago at a thing called Christ at the checkpoint, in which I made the point that if you do not face the reality of what this pressure means for a little group of people like Israel, surrounded by nations, some of which wants to totally eliminate their existence, and you do not understand the security challenges that that represents in such a compact space, then you will not understand some of the things, some of the inequities that people are feeling as Israel seeks to protect itself. Uh, all that is undoubtedly true, Chris, can I, but um, it's also true that proportionality matters, and we're now looking at uh, numbers of dead Palestinians significantly in excess of those killed in that terrible raid in Israel. And the other thing is you've also had in the last few days the Palestinian Christians asking our own Archbishop of Canterbury here, um, hold on a second, you're talking about uh, Israel and the Jews. What about the suffering of Palestinians? Do you feel that the, 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 the story and the concerns of Palestinian Christians don't get are not being as well reported as those within Israel? I, I want to agree with everybody here in that I, I think the way Professor Book helped us understand the... Um, emotional and psychological experience of um, Israelis fearing a group of people that want to see them not exist anymore. You mentioned this phrase, from the river to the sea, that's been chanted on the streets of London by a small minority who have tried to, I think, overtake peaceful demonstrations for Palestine. Um, you know, from the river to the sea, may uh, Palestine be free. And Jewish people hear that as saying we want the annihilation of all Jews in that space. So there is that. And no one can excuse the unbelievable atrocities that Hamas um, perpetrated. I mean, the, the, as more details come out, the more it, it, it just makes your blood boil. I know that's true, but, me, but and I don't want to play it down for a moment. But in terms of proportionality, already before Israel has entered Gaza, maybe three times as many... Palestinians have now been killed, and for you know, for all that we can see, the uh, I mean, unbelievable atrocities committed by Hamas: children, babies dying, no water, oxygen. It's propor it's proportionality. I mean, that must have an element. It, it's not even the right proportions. You know, it, it, any death is terrible, um, and and but particularly civilian deaths. It, here's what I object to: 
um, this collective punishment feels wrong. So, for example, I, I lived in Brighton as a child. Uh, the IRA bombed the Conservative Party conference and blew up the hotel, the Grand Hotel in Brighton, where many um, conservatives were sleeping. Um, members of families died or were severely injured. Now, it, it wouldn't have been appropriate for the Westminster government to go and bomb Belfast because the IRA had embedded themselves within the civilian population. That would have been completely inappropriate. Um, and it wouldn't have been right for us to cut off the water and electricity to a civilian population, even though embedded in that population was a terrorist organization. So I, I think the challenge has been that Hamas have deliberately done something so atrocious, almost on purpose to get an outrageous response from Israel that will cause other people around the world to be shocked and probably draw in other countries into a conflict. So this is why we, as you know, I, I run a charity, have been asking our government to play a peacemaking role. I don't think it's appropriate for our politicians to say, uh, as if it was enough, Israel has every right to defend itself. That That's true. But what do you mean by defend yourself? Do you mean bomb a civilian population and starve them of water and and um, and food? But abusing that Northern Ireland parallel, um, it, 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 it's a, it's a, not a, a brilliant parallel, I know, but using it as a parallel, the only way things started to improve was because hope was given, essentially to the nationalists and the militant republicans that there was another role there was another way forward now good friday agreement came along and so on which was you know creative ambiguity reassuring the protestants that without their agreement there could be no unification of ireland but saying very clearly to the nationalists if if, if you were if there's a majority voting for the unification of ireland fine people would say the problem now or one of the key problems in the in the situation is the Palestinians have been given no hope and when this is over what role can Christianity play in giving hope if Christianity in a way is not about hope in in a way what is it about so Chris if you're trying to say to Palestinian Christians you must have hope what hope can you offer them what hope can anyone offer them I think the calls for a humanitarian corridor to get goods in but also to allow civilians out and I, I, I've literally just launched a campaign to ask people in the UK to go first we um, in the UK offered women and children from Ukraine to come and live in our homes as an act of hospitality to get them out of the way of the bombs we had no control about whether Russia was going to bomb or not but we could do something about women and children and I think if we offered that kind of hospitality, because as Professor Bock said, it's unlikely that as what normally happens in a refugee resettlement, that surrounding countries are able to host people. But there's so much challenge to that, you know, with Egypt and Lebanon, that it's unlikely to be surrounding countries are able to help. Hamza Youssef, who's the uh, leader of the Scottish government, has called for this global response. Uh, I think if Britain were to go first and say, look, we'll do the first thousands, it might prompt other people to do it. Now, this is only a temporary evacuation, just a little bit like in the Second World War. We took our children out of the city centres that were getting bombed. We didn't expect the children to never come back. It was a temporary evacuation. I think that's one way Christians and, and other good-willed people 
can offer hope that the Palestinians are not alone. We aren't all backing, you know, Israel's bombardment and um, uh, barricading of, of them, but we do want to find a way to be able to help protect civilians. I think if we can speak up for that, that's that's power. That's 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 a, that could be a really symbolic uh, moment for Middle Eastern relationship. And the and the hard part of the hard part of this is that any effort to try and get Palestinians and Jews to live together in the land gets a negative reaction from groups like Hamas. And so, uh, so the, the undermining of the creation of hope, if I can say it that way, is coming through the effort that says any, remember, I remember years ago, there was a very large amount of talk about a two state solution in the Middle East where Palestinians would have the right of, uh, of, you know, managing their own lives and, and discussion was being set up. But the move towards that is part of what has produced the violence in the region because the idea that Israel can coexist with Palestinian neighbors is a non-starter for the, for the more radical groups that are being fueled. So all I'm trying to say is there is a three-way thing happening here. It's not a two-way thing. And, and that third element really complicates um, what happens because of the way they operate. Well, thank you very much. We're going to have to stop there for the moment. In the final part of our discussion, we're going to uh, explore the idea of progressive dispensationalism. Now, what's that? I want to find out in a moment. Please come back and uh, uh, let us know what you think uh, about this particular debate. And don't forget to sign up for our newsletter uh, for a chance to win this month's prize book. And if you've got comments about this programme, you can always email us at unbelievable at premier.org.uk. Please join us again in just a moment. Welcome back. You're listening to Unbelievable, the programme that tries to get Christians and non-Christians thinking about the topics that matter to all of us. Uh, welcome back to the final part of our debate. Uh, my guests are Professor Daryl Bock and Dr. Krish Kandaya. And uh, let me pick up immediately with you, Daryl Bock, and this idea uh, very powerfully held in evangelical Christian circles of progressive dispensationalism. Well, could you break that down for us? By saying, by explaining first of all, what is dispensationalism, and secondly, what progressive dispensationalism, and if anybody at home is worrying about what this has got to do with Israel, hold on, we'll get there. Okay, so let me let's start let's start there. A dispensation is simply a stewardship; it's an administrative relationship. So the argument is that God has administered His plan of salvation in the Old Testament in one way, through the law in Israel. Today, he does it through the church and the belief in Jesus. And there's a future time in which the idea is Jesus is going to come back and set up a millennial kingdom rule and a new heaven and a new earth. And then among Christians, there's a debate about whether that's two periods, a thousand year period, and then a new heaven and a new earth, or whether it's just the new heaven and the new earth when he comes back. So that's, but they're different uh, administrative, different stewardships, different administrative relationships that come across time that are part of the plan of God. And in dispensationalism, what has been distinctive is the idea of even though you have the church and even though people, all people are supposed to be responsive to what it is God has done through Christ, God has a place for Israel in his program that will 
and she will come into this program at some point in the future, which is why dispensational Christians are so concerned about the status of Israel even now. So that's why a lot, quite a lot of those sorts of Christians believe it is essential for the millennium, for when the millennium comes, that the state of Israel exists physically. That's right. And as, and as a nation state group, I mean, the, the millennium is seen as, as a, a world at peace, not just individuals at peace with God, but even nations at peace with God. That's that the corporate dimension of this tends to get lost in the conversation, but it is a part of the conversation. Uh, my, uh, my analogy, whenever I do this, and I'm going to have a little fun with it while I do it, but uh, my analogy for this is the European Union. Okay. Yeah. Everyone, everyone is a European. Okay. But you have Italians, you have French, you have Germans. I'm not sure what to do with the British. That's where I'm having my fun. Uh, but yeah, the uh, British don't know what to do with the British either. I know, so, but the whole point is, is that you have a big unity that everyone connects with on the one hand, but there's their individual identity that is distinct on the other, and they both coexist. And so the idea of the millennium is this is going to be a worldwide <laughs> European Union. It won't be a European Union, it'll be a global union. And uh, it will be... It will be uh, the United Nations as it ought to be. I'll say it that way. And, uh, and, and as a result, you're talking about hope earlier. That's part of what the Christian hope involves, is that at some point, God will restore peace and justice, a genuine peace and justice to the whole of the world. And Israel will be a part of that story. But, but why does it have to happen in a physical place? And why, why Israel? Why can't it just happen throughout the world? Well, it does happen throughout the world, but it happens throughout the world to picture what it is that God has done, which is to bring a reconciliation to the world. In other words, the new man, as it's described in Christian theology, is Jew and Gentile together. That's actually part of the story, that God has taken estranged people and pulled them together and made them family. And, and, so, and that family involves all the tribes and all the nations, including ones to whom the original promise was made. And so that's, that's really at the core of what drives a dispensationalist concern for Israel. And then all the progressive part of it is, is to say, this program is unfolding across time, across the progress of revelation, across the way in which God is manifesting these uh, administrative moves, kind of one, one era at a time. And they're connected to each other. And the, uh, and the program advances or progresses as it moves through what it is that God is doing. But there is an argument that the church is the new Israel, that, that, that as it were, things have developed from a particular place in the Middle East, and that the church as a whole is the new Israel. Uh, does that fit in with uh, dispensationalism? It, it fits in with progressive dispensationalism in the recognition that what God has done in Christ involves all the tribes and all the nations and the promises that come to originally were made from and for and through Israel have now been extended to cover all tribes and all nations. But, and this is the point, not at the expense of Israel. In other words, Israel is a part of that story. We don't lose Israel in the expansion of of who gets included. I like to use the illustration of uh, I'm a patron sponsoring a seminary student who's single. And they go to seminary and I say, I'm gonna underwrite your, uh, I'm gonna underwrite your seminary education. Okay, and then he falls in love and he gets married to someone I didn't make the promise to. But now the question becomes, am I going to continue to support you 
and your spouse in the midst of my commitment that I made to you? And I say, when the answer to that question is yes, the promise can expand, but you don't lose the original party with whom you made the agreement. Now, in the first part of our discussion, I think I was talking about anti-Semitism and also quoting those horrible words of Martin Luther. And you could have said, my experience when I was very young of evangelicalism, um, 50 years ago, whatever, that it was tainted to a degree by anti-Semitism. Yet now we have a situation, in the, particularly in the United States, where evangelicals are some of the strongest supporters about the physical existence of the state of Israel. That's quite a transformation. How did it come about, Professor? Well, I think it's I think it's a reflection of this theological belief about where how God is going to bring together all tribes and all nations, including those with whom he made his original commitments. The argument here is that God is faithful to the promises that he makes and the people he makes them to. And one of the stories of the Old Testament, of course, is Israel's consistent unfaithfulness before God, but that didn't cause God to walk away from Israel. God continued to try and work for the restoration of Israel, which actually is a picture of how he works for the restoration of all of us. You know, the argument is in Christianity that in one sense or another, we all turn our backs to God, and yet God is persistent in trying to draw, him to him, draw us to himself. And so that idea is underscoring the way also Israel is being handled theologically in the dispensational perspective of things. God will keep his promises. Dr. Kandai, you wanted to come in. Yeah, so what we're talking about is eschatology. And if you don't know what eschatology is, don't worry, it's not the end of the world. Um, sorry, that was a terrible <laughs> Which is joke. one of the worst jokes. That's a terrible <laughs> yeah. No, actually, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed terrible jokes. It's the so last time terrible. you tell that joke about the last things, okay? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but the, um, there are different lenses that different Christian traditions use to think about the end times. And one lens that's that's popular is dispensationalism. It, there are other lenses that others would use. Um, it, it's one of the kind of transatlantic conversations I think we have differently in that in, in America, it's not unusual for the different um, denominations to, to pick a uh, an eschatological framing. You know, so, um, for example, if, if you were going to speak at a university Christian union or um, to join the Evangelical Alliance, it doesn't specify which eschatological framework you need to agree with in order to be considered an evangelical. It would just say, we believe in the return of Christ, but it doesn't say whether it's after a thousand years or before a thousand years or whether there is a thousand years. That Those those are um, areas that Christians can agree to disagree, if you like. Dispensationalism, one framing of that. Um, and the millennial piece that we've talked about is particularly from Revelation chapter 20, where this is spelt out. Um, personally, um, I, as most of us do, find the book of Revelation complicated to disentangle when is figurative language being used, symbolic language being used. It talks about the elect being 144,000. We don't think there's only 144,000 people that are going to live in the new heavens and the new earth. We think that's a symbolic number, 12 times 12 times 1,000. That that says everybody that gets included. Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, take that very literally. So what's figurative, what's literal, that, that's a whole fun area of, of, um, of conversation. I tend to interpret, it, interpret the book of Revelation through the lens of the rest of the New Testament, and I, I don't come to the same conclusions about the 1,000 years if I was just taking 
Thessalonians and Corinthians, for example, into the frame. But you do believe in the rapture, what is called the rapture? Well, even that is an interesting framing. So within dispensationalism, um, well, there's pre-millennial um, approaches where the, the Christians get taken off the planet before Jesus comes and reigns on the earth for a thousand years. And that's where you get those classic movies where someone's flying a plane and they're a Christian and they get raptured out and the plane crashes. And this is the Tim LaHaye stuff. I'm not convinced that that happens. I think there is, at the end of time, those of us who are still alive, we get translated into our new bodies to meet you know, Jesus in the air. And that's when the resurrection from the dead happened, those that have been waiting they're woken up by the same trumpet and we all get to meet jesus so i i'm not convinced that there's a separate rapture for christians leaving everybody else behind but look i'm just teasing these things out to say that the um belief in the importance of a physical nation state of israel is particularly important to dispensational theology and other people in in europe for example are, are less that's a less common view than it might be in some parts of the states, um, and that's there's there's room for discussion and debate. For me, I'm always looking for the common ground, and you know, evangelicals disagree on a whole bunch of things. You know, whether women should be leading in churches or not, and whether we can still speak in tongues or not. But we can still be brothers and sisters despite having you know different views on these. I would describe as secondary issues, not core to the gospel. I think I think someone can have views that differ to mine about eschatology and still be in the kingdom. I don't think we can have different views about whether Jesus lived and died and rose again and still call ourselves Christians. But on these issues of eschatology, I think there's room for friendly debate, you know, challenging each other. But I think we're still brothers and sisters, even if we land differently on this. Yeah, what Chris is saying is very, very fair. These are conversations that happen among Christians. And, and this is part of how we view, uh, why we view the situation in Israel differently as Christians sometimes, or these differences. Having said that, just one little, one little, I don't know what to call it, uh, uh, email reply uh, to Krish, and that is, this isn't just a matter of, of um, Revelation 20. Revelation 20 gives a time frame for it. But the idea that God will restore peace and justice on the earth runs through the whole of the Bible. There's uh, Isaiah 2, Isaiah 19. Isaiah 19 is a graphic text. It says there's going to be a highway that runs from Egypt through Israel to Assyria. Now, Egypt and Assyria are two very big enemies of Israel, and they're all going to be at peace, and they're all going to be called God's people. That's in Isaiah 19. So, um, so this idea that there is something happening on the earth that is real, and, and this goes back to the reconciliation picture, which is a question you asked earlier, and it also is a reflection of the fact that God is trying to restore this creation and bring it back to the wholeness with which he originally created it. So underneath all of this is that idea, uh, which makes which makes salvation not just spiritual but material in some sense. Yeah, that we have to respect. We, we actually agree. We agree together, Daryl. Um, it's one of the big challenges I have with some of the ways that we frame the gospel as if it's escapology. You know, we're going to escape this planet up yep. to heaven and live in our, you know heavenly bodies rather than a, a, a restoration of all creation I, I think that's right i think we might disagree on the thousand year period what happens to christians and non-christians in 
that you know the, the time before the final consummation i think that's probably where we might disagree but the end result of peace on earth you know your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven i think we are agreed on there's another de- brief disagreement that's worth pinpointing and it's this there are many christians whether they're dispensational or not who think about a future for individual Jews and individual Israelis and even a mass uh, return to God by them. Uh, But that's a different question than thinking about Israel as a nation state. And so part of that conversation that we just had has that wrapped up in it as well. And so some people will say, I think there's going to come a time when a lot of Jews are going to be responsive to what God has done. But I don't think that includes the idea of the role of Israel as a nation state among the nations. And dispensationalists tend to say, no, this is this is both an individual and a corporate conversation. And are we seeing, I mean, some people are talking, well, people have always talked, I suppose, that the end times, I mean, from the very beginning, the first Christians expected, obviously, Jesus to return uh, within their lifetime. I mean, uh, within a few months, a year, who knows? Gradually, of course, people adjusted to the fact that that wasn't going to happen. But we seem to have a recurrence in recent years of, of an interest in and belief in the end times. Uh, Chris, can, I, can we ever know when the end time is going to come? Well, Jesus said that he'll come like a thief in the night. I mean, that, that was the name of the film that they used to talk about the plane where, you know, the, the Christian pilot gets raptured and the, cra- the plane crashes down. But, but Jesus himself said it in the gospel. And the whole thing about a thief is he doesn't tell you when he's coming. He doesn't say, look, be ready at 1059. I'm going to come in through the left window because you'll be there ready to cosh him on the head wouldn't you so it is going to be unexpected that's part of part of it and he said you know it, it'd be like a pregnant woman these might just be the labor pains so anytime anything's happening in the middle east partly because of this dispensational framing people go oh you know it, it must be the end time let's start the clock now and get ready I, I think our job is to seek the kingdom of god now right to, to help demonstrate in word and deed the goodness of the gospel and we should be always ready to do that because who knows if uh, our master will come back at, at, at night at a time we're least expecting him so we just need to be always ready i think that was part of the the idea and um, and just just finally for, for me on this the you raise you raise a really interesting question about um does a jewish life count more than a palestinian life and I think sometimes we Christians are so invested in the physical state of Israel. Um, and because these places, I mean, the, you know, Bethlehem, you know, Ashkabeb was, was mentioned the other day, I think. You know, they're, they're so familiar to us. There's that sense of, well, we're with Israel. And I think it's possible to stand with Israel in their grief, in their pain, in their desire to have a place of their own. But that doesn't have to be at the expense of standing with civilian Palestinians who are caught in the middle of this too. And I think that's when the gospel shines brightly. You know, we're called to love our neighbor and love our enemies. So mm-hmm. the, the power of the gospel is it transcends these tribal, ethnic, political, ideological boundaries. And it allows us to demonstrate that God really is someone who loves the whole world. So I, I think I'm nervous when we get involved in some of these conversations. It sounds like we only care about one group in this because we've got kind of ideological investment. And I think we can transcend that. And that would be super powerful. And that's what the early church did. If you think about the the letter to the Ephesians, for example, um, Paul tells us that God blew up the dividing wall that separated Jews from Gentiles and that we're now one people in Christ. That was revolutionary that that one people could come because of the reconciliation of Christ. 
and you know we're supposed to be now, wasn't it also revolutionary wasn't jesus revolutionary precisely because he he challenged the established order and and he was on the side of the poor and the oppressed yeah, wherever they are right. and that that's he right. broke in some ways the jewish law by treating samaritans anybody yeah as human beings not as primarily Jewish people, and therefore, if you asked where Jew, where Jesus would be today in this conflict, he presumably would be with those who were suffering wherever they're suffering. And, and the irony of the conversation that we've had the entire time is that we've talked about two groups of oppressed people who are in conflict with each other, and so um, that's that's part of the challenge. I mean, Chris has this right that what we we are. We Christians are supposed to be uh, working for for hope and a value and value every life, and that there is a challenge of of privileging uh, one group uh, over another. And and I think the thing that I struggle with the most is this recognition that in the midst of uh, of Israel trying to self exist and Palestinians trying to self exist, there's another group out there that wants to wipe out one of those groups. And that complicates the entire conversation in a way that I think we underestimate. Um, and, uh, and, and that's the, that's the challenge of, of the current moment that we find ourselves in. And it, it, it really is, um, you know, it took millennia to get into this mess. You're not going to, you're not going to resolve it with a 30 minute, uh, uh, sitcom with two commercial breaks. It's just not going to happen. But a You're lot right. of, I think, quite a, a lot of Christians are agonizing about this because, understandably, if they have um, Jewish friends and so on, they they want to stand with them. And often, their Jewish friends expect them to stand with them, uh, and then they watch what's happening in Palestinian hospitals and they hear there's no power and there's no water and they see incubators being disconnected and and they look at the sheer numbers involved and they want to stand with Palestinians. And the danger of all, I mean, and we should have the courage even to offend our friends, but there is a sense of powerlessness that most people, the Christians I suspect now, feel. And uh, Professor Bock, what's your answer to that? What do, what should Christians now do? Well, I, I, I think I think Christians are right to have sympathy to both sides of the conversation. I meet with a group on a monthly basis in which the group itself has all these mixture of views, and we talk about this. Um, we talk about this with the various lenses that we have and what the resolution should be, and we're trying to be sensitive to the concerns that each group is bringing the conversation and how tangled, how tangled a mess it is. Um, and I, I think making people aware of how tangled the mess is and the, and the complicating factors that are a part of this conversation and understanding that is important in thinking through it. And then, uh, you know, I, I don't want to give Israel a carte blanche that she can do whatever she wants in this, in this area. I don't think that is a Christian response, but I do very much understand why the response in, in the direction it's going exists and it and it's been built up over a long period of time uh, it has to do with the way in which Israel's presence in the land has been challenged by some uh, to even be there at all something the rest of the world tends to recognize and so um, you know that just that's that's a monkey wrench in the whole deal that's the only point I'm trying to make and uh, and to 
And to simply treat this, I've said it before, to simply treat this as a two-way conversation when there really is a third complicating element in it is to miss what is happening in the dynamics of what's going on. And and finally, uh, Krish Kandaya, um, we've seen in recent days, or yesterday, I think, um, Israel react furiously to the Secretary General of the United Nations in which he, in the speech that he made. Um, and there may some people be thinking, not only should we pray, but also we should support UNCHR and so on. Does uh, Do you think... Has your faith in the United Nations been diminished, or do you think that in the end we should still continue to support its refugee um, offices? Well, the, the, the furious reaction to the United Nations has been um, on its director challenging Israel about this carte blanche, that they, they shouldn't do collective punishment on the civilian population. And, and he dared to say that, that there was a context for the attack. Now, again, I think it isn't impossible for Christians to have a nuanced approach here that we can say, look, those terror, it was a terror attack, 1400 people, children burned, it seems alive, you know, women raped, civilians shot absolutely out of order. Nothing can justify that. But there is a political context in which that has, um, that extremism has been generated. And sadly, um, looking at some of the casualties and, and the bombardment, I can imagine another generation of extremists being generated by this kind of um, abuse and, and, and pain. And so this, this is why we don't we, we believe that, that forgiveness and love are not just soft concepts, you know, for, between people who have annoyed each other in church. We think they're globally useful things. How do you so stop what I'm this trying kind to get of at is who knows? We can't stop. We can't stop this. We don't know how to do it. But we can't just watch, can we? No, we can't. We must be impelled to some form of action. What sort of action can Christians throughout the world take? So I think there are a few. I think we need to start speaking, that we can be a nuanced voice. We don't have to just project an Israeli flag on our church or on our uh, government buildings. I think we need to start saying that we stand with Israel and we stand with civilians that are in, in, in Gaza. I think we can say that. That's important. Break cover. Even if you risk offending your friends, we need to speak up for truth and righteousness and humanity. I think, secondly, we should be supporting charities that are trying to get aid in to support those in need. I genuinely think a refugee offering uh, to those that want to evacuate children would be incredibly powerful, and I think we should think about doing that. Jesus called us peacemakers and blessed are the peacemakers for we known as the children of God it's our family likeness it's how people know that we belong to God is if we're proclaiming living and acting for peace and that's hard it means that peacemakers are often the people that get shot by both sides but it's the courageous stance and it's it's so prophetic in this moment that we'd offer something different I've got one last story I want to tell you Roger um, I heard stories coming out of Burundi where there was ethnic um, friction that actually led to an early form of the genocide that ended up in Rwanda. And the story is told of Christians in the dining hall of a university in Burundi. And the, the, there was a division between the Hutus and the Tutsis on one side, and the Christians sat in the middle. 
And sometimes the Hutu Christians would go up to the dining hall and they'd collect the dinner and serve it to their Tutsi Christian brothers. And then when it came for dessert, they'd swap it around. Now, that was a prophetic symbol that our ethnic division is secondary to our love for one another in Christ. Sadly, it seems, when the genocide hit Burundi, the stories go that often the Christians were killed first because we challenged the ethnocentrism. I think that is a model for us in any conflict that we should speak up for humanity, seeing the image of God in another person and be willing to be peacemakers, whatever the cost. Chris Kandaya and uh, Dara Block, uh, we, we've got to stop there. Thank you so much. It's been an education for me. I hope it has. I'm sure it has for our listeners. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. As always, let us know what you think. But now, until the next time, goodbye. Thank you for joining us on Unbelievable, the show that aims to get you thinking. We would love to hear your thoughts. Do get in touch. You can email us at unbelievable at premier.org.uk or leave a comment on our Twitter account at unbelievablefe or on the Premier Unbelievable Facebook page. And do check out our website, premierunbelievable.com. Registering there gives you access to all of our web content and our newsletter, through which you can gain access to hours of exclusive bonus content. That's premierunbelievable.com. And if you register or sign up for our newsletter there, you will automatically be entered into our competition to win a free book. If you enjoy listening to Unbelievable, please do consider rating and reviewing it on your podcast platform. Thank you for listening and see you next week.